0: Well, Lent is starting to draw to its conclusion, and I think many of us are happy about that because we're looking forward to Easter, the big Easter celebration, Easter eggs, all those sorts of things. But of course, what we're doing now as we enter to the last stages of Lent is not just uh, end of our journey, but it's also near the end of Jesus' journey in the Gospels. We're reading stories that bring Jesus closer and closer to the cross and ultimately to the resurrection. And so today's story is a story of Jesus just a few days before his death. It mentions six days before the Passover, but you may remember that it's around the time of the Passover that Jesus is crucified. So what we're hearing now are some of the last acts and the last days of Jesus before his actual death. I want to talk to you today about this important incident in which Mary, the sister of Lazarus, uh, anoints Jesus' feet and wipes away the perfume with her hair. Let's talk to you a little bit about why this is an important symbol or important um, way of learning something about worship for us today to talk to you a little bit about the way that the world reacts to these sorts of things and answer why we worship uh, in, uh, despite objections the world may bring. And then finally, to tell us a little bit about what this tells us about the way, or the, the way that we use our personality and the way that God uses our natural makeup to give him glory regardless of what our makeup actually is. So to understand the story, as often as the case, it's worthwhile just looking at what happens right before it. We're now in John chapter 12, we read verses 1 through 8. But in order to understand this very well, you need to understand what happens in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a very famous story, and many of you, I'm sure, will have heard it. But for those who haven't, it's the story of Lazarus being raised. We're told in chapter 12 they're having a dinner and that Lazarus is present. And why is Lazarus the, the, um, the guest of honor? The guest of honor because in the previous chapter, Lazarus had died. Jesus is friends with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they're all brothers and sister, and Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick. Then Jesus is eventually told Lazarus has died, and then he goes and journeys to where Lazarus is, where he's buried, and so both Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, are heartbroken. He's dead, and they say there's no use, there's not much more that you can do here, and Jesus will have none of it. He weeps for himself because he sees the suffering of the crowds and of Lazarus, but then he demands that the stone be rolled away from Lazarus' tomb. And Mary and Martha both are very practical in this and say, you know, you don't want to do this, Jesus. It smells. Lazarus has been dead long enough in the hot Mediterranean climate. This guy is very, very dead. You don't want to go in there. But Jesus insists. And what does he say? He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth. Here, this man is raised from the dead. To understand what's going on here in chapter 12, you need to understand that what has prompted Mary's act of devotion is that Jesus has just raised her brother from the dead. She is celebrating a resurrection that Jesus is responsible for bringing about. that brings me to my first point. What is Mary doing here? Why is she doing what she does? I think it's included in the Gospels because first and foremost is an example to us about what we need to do in thinking about an appropriate response to the goodness of God. Mary has filled with gratitude because God just raised her brother from the dead, and this is an act of devotion in service to the one who brought it about. You know, many times, just like Mary experienced, uh, many times we find that people in the world, just like Judas, who snarks and thinks this is not a good thing, this is stupid, what are you doing, Mary?, Most of us, I think, when we gather here on Sunday, know that much of the world really doesn't seem to care one way or the other what we do. And if you talk to many people, yes, occasionally you meet the hardened atheist who says that, you know, religion's a cancer on the face of humanity. Most people, in fact, when you meet them and they don't go to church, a lot of them, if they're really honest with you, will say, well, the reason I don't go is not because I hate church, it's because it's a complete waste of time. And in fact, many times they think it's a bit silly for all of us to show up and sing praises to Jesus, because after all it seems like we're not accomplishing very much. When I was thinking about a good analogy that works in the modern world, I was brought back to a, a film many of you will have seen because it was a well-known film by Alfred Hitchcock called The Lady Vanishes. Have you ever seen that movie? You may remember, there's been a few remakes, and I just watched a remake what jogged my memory. There's a remake on Netflix that I watched, The Lady Vanishes. But it centers around the story of a young woman who is an heiress uh, her parents have died, and so she has a lot of money, but she doesn't have a job, doesn't have many uh, ideas about how she wants to spend her life, so she kind of gallivants around Europe in the in the pre-war era, uh, spending money, drinking champagne, seems like a sort of flighty, uh, unserious kind of person. Well, uh, they're there, I believe, in the Balkans and having a vacation, and she decides she wants to go back home to England, and so she gets on a train uh, to Trieste in in Italy. But as she gets on the train, nobody there seems to speak much English, and so she finally uh, finds some relief when a woman there, she meets an older British woman who speaks English. And so they strike up a conversation, they speak a little bit on the train, and then later, uh, when they go back to the uh, carriage where they are, uh, the woman, Iris, falls asleep. She wakes up. She notices that uh, the woman, the British woman, is, is missing. She doesn't make much out of it at the beginning because she thinks maybe she's gone off to the restaurant car or something. But later, as the hours go by and she hasn't returned, she starts asking around, what happened to this woman? And everybody there who is able to speak English, not many of them, say, what woman? There's no woman here. And she gets a person to come and translate. And the people in the the carriage say, no, 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 there is no woman here. You're imagining it. So eventually she starts wondering, am I crazy? Did I imagine this? And then uh, she, she decides, no, she wasn't. I, I spoke with this woman. I know she was really there. And, and eventually uh, people all start saying, you're crazy, you're deluded, you're, you're bothering us, uh, and, and you keep talking about bringing in the police and that this is stupid. Well, uh, spoiler alert, it turns out she was right. There was a nefarious plot that kidnapped this woman, and eventually she's vindicated completely. She has to put up with all of the jibes and the attacks of everybody, but why does she do it? Because she knows that the only appropriate response to a person vanishing, regardless of what everybody thinks, is to search for her and make a big stink until she's found. It's the only appropriate response. What is Mary's appropriate response to the man who raises her brother from the dead? Not firm handshake, thanks, good job Jesus. She's overwhelmed. I mean, can you imagine what it would be that you've poured your heart out, your heart is broken because somebody you love has just died and they pop out of the casket because Jesus raised them from the dead? Unheard of, incredible, absolutely miraculous. And she's overflowing, doesn't know what to do other than saying, this is one of the most precious things I have, I'm giving it to you as a gratuitous, wonderful show of my love for you. She's attacked, she's criticized, but she doesn't care because she knows the only appropriate response is to pour this out for the person who did this great thing. What do we do when we are impressed with God's goodness? I remember hearing a story about C.S. Lewis and how it is where he was an atheist as a young man. One of the things that started him on the journey towards faith was that he would go out for walks in the English countryside, and he'd go off and see the, the spring flowers coming up, or he'd look up in the starry sky and he'd be impressed with the beauty of creation, and his heart would fill with gratitude, but he had nobody to thank I began to think, well, maybe all this gratitude is there for a reason because there is somebody that I'm supposed to thank. Sadly, in the world that we live in now, one of the greatest challenges the church has is that we live in a world that has come to believe there's nobody up there to thank. It's not always that it's hostile to religion, but it's come to embrace uh, the idea that we're here basically by accident. You know that famous phrase uh, by the philosopher uh, Friedrich Nietzsche? Many will know his most famous is God is dead, but many of us don't realize what he says right afterwards. He says, God is dead and we have killed him. You know what he meant by that? It's not that God ever existed. He says the idea of God used to be really important to people, to motivate them. But we killed that idea, and we killed that idea because we don't want somebody above us watching over us that we're responsible to. Over time, he lived in the late 19th century, it has trickled down into our culture in which it's come to be believed that because there's nobody above us, when we're filled with gratitude, We have nobody to thank. But what's the appropriate response when I walk around the neighborhood and I see the signs of spring coming other than to say the person who did all of these things deserves our praise and thanks? It is the only response that's right. Just the other day I was walking to school with my little daughters and as I was going there, my daughter said, look at that uh, robin on the roof there. And I originally thought she said, look at the rabbit under the roof. And I thought, oh, well, that's pretty impressive to see. But it was almost as impressive when I looked up. And it was a robin, a fat, red-breasted robin that showed spring is coming. And now I'm thinking, now that the snows receded off of my lawn. I can't wait to see the crocuses popping their way up in my flower bed that I planted in the fall. All of those things are things you look at, and your heart is filled with what? If your heart's not made out of stone, it's filled with the sense that I'm glad to be alive. The sun is, is out more. I'm feeling longer days. I feel reasons to give praise. What are we doing when we gather here? We're coming on Sunday to say, like, the appropriate response for us is to say, i got to thank the person who provided these things. The world may say it's stupid. They may say it's a waste of time, just as Judas did to Mary. But it is not a waste of time to do the right thing in the right moment. The right moment is to gather on Sunday to say thank you for what you've given to us. Same thing when we we'll face trials and temptation. How easy is it for us to sink into despair when we lose our job or a relationship breaks up or somebody gets sick? We're at the end of our abilities. What do we do? Crush ourselves in despair? We kind of veil over with this sunny optimism that goes nowhere and is founded in nothing? No. What do we do? We come to implore to ask God and say, my strength has come to an end. What's the only thing left for me to do? To implore the one whose strength hasn't come to an end. We worship on Easter because we recognize Christ has victory over the grave. When our power comes to an end, his does not. When we gather on Sunday, don't for a moment think that what we're doing is something useless and stupid. It makes entire logical sense because the fact is is that some actions demand a grateful response, and that is what the goodness of God demands. We gather and we say, God, we want to give you praise because we see the good things you have done. But there's another aspect to what Judas complains about, isn't there? Not only does Judas say uh, uh, this is a waste, he also says something really interesting and cynical. We're told this. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? And a denarius is about a day's wage. So it took about a year of savings to buy this. So why was it not given for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief kept the common person used to steal what was put into it. He's making a big show and saying, look, this could all be given to the poor. Doesn't that make a lot of practical sense? But of course, we're led into the real reason he cares. He cares not just because this is a gratuitous display. He cares because he would like to feather his own nest, right? You know, one of the most common objections you hear from the really hardcore critics of religion is to sort of say, it's a waste of time and resources. Why are you giving your time to the church? Why are you giving your money to the church in service of God when it could be used in so many more productive ways? Now, of course, sometimes we think, well, that actually makes a little sense, doesn't it? Of course, we all know atheists are people who don't identify as believers, who are good, caring, giving, who devote a lot of themselves. And we also know the opposite. You know, I'm sure have all run into, I hope nobody in our church, but have run into Christians who are kind of jerks who seem miserly, who are quick to criticize, who don't bring joy and light to the world around them, but the opposite. You know, what's interesting, though, is that statistics tell us that even though you have those cases, in fact, people who are religiously observant, and Christians in particular, are people who are noted for giving much higher than average of their time in terms of volunteering and much higher than average in terms of their giving to charity. It's interesting that I bet if you went and asked everybody in the room, what do you do uh, for the world around you, you'd be surprised at the number of people who give their time and their efforts to the Legion, to the Canadian Cancer Society, to animal welfare, to uh, helping out the disadvantaged. Look at the number of people who sign up for Bud Club when you have it, for example. You don't get anything out of that in terms of time or money. What do you get other than the joy of actually helping uh, children who don't always have a club to join? So often what happens when you gather in church, you come to worship and praise God, but one of the things that is encouraged is that when you love God and give more to God, miraculously and wonderfully, God's grace works through us to encourage us to give more to the neighbors who are made in God's image. It's not a mistake or a coincidence that Jesus says the two important laws are love God and love your neighbor, because when you love God truly, you begin to love your neighbor because that's what God does we follow Jesus, what is his love? His love is not just, Father, I love you. My love is, I give my life for those who have come to serve and washes their feet and serves them in incredible ways. What happens? One of my roles as a preacher, one of the roles the Scriptures gives us, is not just to say, God loves you and pat you on the back. I mean, after all, we don't just come here and, and join hands in a circle and sing kumbaya and tell everybody how awesome they are. One of the important roles I have is to challenge you. To come here and ask yourself, are you looking at your own life? Or come in Lent and say, are there things you need to change in the way you treat your neighbor, your wife, your children, your coworkers? Are you faithful in giving and serving to this world? And I can tell you, if I'm not doing that, let me know and I'll give you a bigger tongue lashing next week. Because it's deeply important we don't just come to have a warm bath. We come to be challenged to serve the world that God loves. Yes, it's entirely possible sometimes when people criticize Christians for giving too much of their time and money to the church, and churches can be inward-focused so much that they do nothing for the world, but I can tell you churches that are alive with the love of God, I believe very strongly are the churches who have the biggest impact in the world because it is impossible to love God, First John tells us, and to hate our brother or sister. When we love God, we cannot help but love and serve the neighbors who are made in God's image. You are challenged when you gather here each Sunday, to make sure that when you go out into this world, you are encouraged to love it and to serve it well. Here's another thing that I find really interesting, though, about this passage, and I think is really important for us to embrace. Do you notice how Mary, of course, gets criticism from Judas, and and Judas criticizes this in general? I can't help but notice that many times this kind of act of devotion is the kind of thing that ends up being criticized even in our modern world. Many of us who are uh, outside of the church, of course, will say, well, yes, this is silly for the reasons Judas mentioned. But I also know that many times throughout the history of the church, the kind of devotion Mary shows is, in fact, a devotion that is frowned upon. We are here in an Anglican and a Lutheran church, and for good or ill, the Anglicans and Lutherans tend to have a reputation of being a little bit dour and suspicious of enthusiasm, right? The kind of stiff upper lip uh, British uh, nature maybe is there, That stern German efficiency, no offense, uh, can sometimes make people feel like what you gather to do when you come to church is, we get through the liturgy, we do this and this and this. Think about how we describe the church. It's a service. Uh, In German, of course, Gottesdienst. It's the divine service or the service of God. It's your duty to get this thing done. And that's why sometimes when you come to church, uh, you can kind of get the impression you're coming in for like a doctor's visit. Like, let's get this done, get it out of here, and we're out there into the world, right? And in that kind of context, you can easily feel like, wow, I, I really feel emotional. Uh, Christ has really made an impact in my life, and I really feel like I want to pour it out in praise and, and think, Ugh, everybody's rolling their eyes and shaking their heads as I'm, as I'm wrapped up in it. I mean, maybe you're the kind of person who likes raising their hands in worship, right? Or maybe the kind of person who is poetic or gets emotional about things. Sometimes it's very easy for the church to look at you and say, wait a second, that's just a little bit dodgy, dial it back a bit. Jesus doesn't do that with Mary. He doesn't say, dial it back, Mary. Instead, Mary, he says, is anointing me for my burial. She's doing the appropriate thing, and she's also actually helping prepare me for the great task I have to do. Don't let somebody look at you and say, because you're emotional and you have this passion therefore, somehow, what you're offering is, is less valuable to Christ. In fact, he values what Mary says. Now, it's not written here, but I think it's also really important, though, to say that the opposite can be true. I grew up in an evangelical church, and so when I grew up in, in that environment, there's a lot that was really good about it. One of the things that was a favorite of preachers there was to say how bad Anglicans and Lutherans and Roman Catholics were, Right? Uh, and one of the reasons that it was always bad is that, you know what they do, they just go and they just repeat all the back and forth, and it's all about the rules and none of the passion, and so what was the gold standard in those kind of churches? If you really love Jesus, then you're going to be an enthusiastic singer, and you're going to uh, have poetic kind of feelings towards Jesus, and you have to be really emotional about it and raise your hands, and, and you get in that kind of environment where sometimes you sort of think, like, what's wrong with me? I'm not, like super emotionally connected here. Am I not a good Christian? The problem is is that I think many times in Christian life, we tend to think that the personality type that I have is what a true disciple looks like. It's entirely possibly the kind of person who is much more a Stoic sort of type. And to say that, in fact, God loves to have your service just as much as he loves the service of the emotional and overflowing and poetic kind of dramatic personality that Mary seems to have. You know, my favorite stories uh, amongst the Christian saints is the story of St. Lawrence. That's who the, uh, the river is named after, just south of us. Lawrence was a deacon in the early years of the church, and at the time the Roman Empire persecuted the church. And so they captured Lawrence and demanded that he recant uh, of his Christian faith and, uh, and start worshiping the Roman gods, and he refused to do it. So they uh, decided that they wanted to force him to do this through torture so uh, terribly. They heated up an iron grate until it was red hot, And then they threw Lawrence on it and bound him to it. And of course, it horribly burned his back. But here's the part of the story that I find just so interesting. They ask St. Lawrence and say, "Um, now what do you have to say for yourself? And St. Lawrence turns to his executioner and says, you can flip me over now, I'm done on this side. Now that is pretty metal, right? Here's a guy who's stoic, who I'm sure is overwhelmed, but says, you know what? I'm not going to let my emotional response overwhelm me. I'm going to do what Christ calls me to do. I don't know much more about Lawrence's life. I don't think any of us do. Maybe he was more emotional in other senses. But why is he a great saint? Because he served Christ under pressure. He answered the call that Christ gave to him, and he responded in a way that was consistent with his personality and calling. I know many people who are devoted to Christ, whose main service is they're great with their neighbors. They, uh, uh, shovel the next door neighbor's walk because she's elderly and can't do it in the wintertime. Who, uh, volunteers to help look after, uh, uh, somebody's children because they're a single mom and have a hard time of uh, finding somebody. Who, uh, you know, is the kind of person who makes sure that, uh, uh country church is open each morning so that people can come and worship. Who, uh, quietly goes and repairs some of the shingles on the roof. These may not be people who write poetry about Jesus, who are emotional in the way that Mary was, but just as valuably serve Christ. It's deeply important to understand that there's no sort of archetypical uh, disciple of Jesus, and you have to be like this. What they hold in common, whether you're St. Lawrence, whether you're emotional, whether you're not, is that who you are, including your personality, both pros and cons, are given over to the service of Christ. St. Lawrence served Christ by standing up in the moment, of trial and answering well. Mary served Christ by pouring out with her tears and with that ointment uh, the burial, uh, preparing Jesus for burial. Wherever you come from, the stoic type, the emotional type, or anywhere in between, what's important is not that you conform to the image other people put on you. What's important is you take what you have and you offer it up to the service of Christ and ask how you can call me and use this. What's deeply important for us to understand from this episode is to remember that Christ does call us to respond appropriately to what he does for us. In gratitude, we gather on Sunday to praise God. And also when we find our strength is weak, the only appropriate response is not despair or sunny optimism. It is putting our trust in God. It is the right and rational thing to do to gather on Sunday and worship. To understand too, you come prepared to be challenged, to recognize that loving God should help and empower you to love your neighbor better, to be a more giving person, reflects the giving and loving nature of Christ. Lastly, to remember that what you're called to do when you come and you worship is not called to be somebody else. You're called simply to present yourself at the altar and say, Christ, whoever I am and whatever I am, use me for your greater service because I know what you want is not a makeup version of me. What you want to serve you is the me I really am. Let's come each Sunday recognizing both the challenge and the joy of serving Christ. And let's go out into the world as ambassadors of Christ, whoever we are and whatever our personality is, knowing that by his grace, he can do great and wonderful things.